Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's Den here, and I have a very special guest, and they're all special, but this one is extra special because I'm talking to Laura Ciceri, who is the founder of Supply Chain Insights. And not only is she the founder of that particular organization, but she has a whopping 302,000 um, followers on, on LinkedIn and growing like a weed, as, they, as some might think. Um, hello, Laura. How are you today? I'm great. I'm stuck in Detroit with the winds whipping at the windows. You know, we've had uh, some extreme weather conditions in North America. It's been pretty one day and kind of brutal the next. So uh, I, today I'm inside and watching it, you know, be bad outside. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm, I'm over in, uh, in what uh, we, we've often referred to as um, – the wild and wet north of England. So I'm I'm with you, but not to the same extreme. <laughs> yep. Okay. I, uh, I like I like the area where you're at. Okay. Um, Laura, on a on a recent um, event, I think it was in Brussels. You you were talking about the the state of um, supply chains, and you were challenging the audience there to to think about whether the supply chain is actually being done right. So you, could, can you just talk us through? Very, very quickly, where you're at with this and what's driving your, your thinking at the moment. Well, thank you, Dennis, for having me on the show, and uh, thank everyone who's listening. Uh, you know, I think we need to listen and think harder about supply chain management because on the current path we're on, we're going to run into some problems. You know, uh, we forecast that we will be short of food in 2050 and that Healthcare will have major issues as we focus on efficient sickness versus wellness. And so as we think about supply chains as they tie to either global economies, safer planet, uh, solving some of these bigger issues, uh, we've got to go from really very enterprise-centric views of how do I make goods and sell goods and make money to how do I build value networks and what drives value. So to give your audience a little bit of background, I am an old gal. I spent 20 years in manufacturing distribution for great companies, and I give thanks for that, like Procter & Gamble, Clorox, General Foods before the acquisition by Kraft, Dryer's Grand Ice Cream before the acquisition by Nestle, and I built software for supply chain for 12 years, and I've been an industry analyst for about 19 and what I've learned in the process is that we are not making a lot of progress in supply chain management. If you think back, supply chain management to look at source, make, and deliver together as a capability first started in 1982. We've always had, you know, a focus on logistics. You know, Napoleon wouldn't have won without logistics. You know, armies and really have always been good at logistics. But the concept of moving source, make, deliver together and really driving insight through planning and analytics actually started in 1982. And so as we think about we're coming up on 40 years, I think we've got to hold ourselves accountable for balance sheet results and driving improvements in value chains. And to that end, I do research. I sit on 9,000 quantitative responses and 15 years of financial data and what I'm doing is I'm triangulating the choices that people make and are they driving balance sheet outcomes and are they solving bigger problems. And when I was an industry analyst at Gartner Group and AMR, I wrote a lot of you know project plans and uh, case studies and 
at that point in time, I believe that the 1.7% that we spent of revenue on enterprise systems had driven significant value in value chains. And when I wrote my first book in 2012, I wanted to write a celebratory book around how that 1.7% of revenue had actually connected to the balance sheet to improve inventory, improve customer service, reduce costs, and drive growth. And what I found from triangulating on the balance sheets and plotting, you know, the intersection of those metrics, what I find is that companies will periodically make improvement in singular objectives like inventory or working capital, uh, but they struggle to be able to sustain long-term trends. So based upon that research, which has been going on now for about a decade, I've concluded that only 10% of public companies in manufacturing have actually driven value out of their current supply chain investments. So, you know, as I sit back and I think about, you know, the companies that I work with, which I work with about a thousand companies, and I do strategy workshops and I help people to understand the evolution of technologies, I think there are five fundamental issues. One, we've focused on supply chain as a function, and we're very caught up in vertical silo effectiveness, and we've substituted efficiency for effectiveness. So the best supply chains combine and can orchestrate cross source make and deliver and supply chain becomes a capability, not a function. Mm. Secondly, I think people have invested in largely legacy architectures, ERP, advanced planning, CRM, WMS, which basically have served the functions, but not really driven supply chain capabilities as we look at customer-centric supply chains or new business models. The back office does big really well, but the growth strategy for the front office is all about how to do small well. And so we've got a real issue with alignment. So the second is, you know, we need to really address the fact that what got us here is not going to be what's going to move us forward. The third issue is that our current processes are very focused inside out. They're about us. They're not about driving value and building networks while we've talked about collaboration, we've really not collaborated. Instead, we've had big sticks that we beat trading partners about the head with, whether it's elongating payables or uh, not giving uh, our trading partners good forecast data or not really holding ourselves accountable for effective trucking and lanes or uh, not really holding ourselves accountable for data portability. We have not driven value and value networks. We're outside in, you know, in the last recession in 2007, it took the average company six months to adjust to market conditions. And I think if we have a downturn in the economy, which there are signals that, you know, it could be on the looming edge. I did a Wall Street Journal uh, interview yesterday about the rising inventories in California. You know, it will still take us six to seven months. I don't think we've made any improvement. Our processes are inside out. They're not outside in. We're not reading market signals. Uh, Ford laid off employees because they couldn't sense that, you know, people were buying SUV vehicles. Uh, Kellogg and General Mills uh, laid off employees because they couldn't sense the downturn in big food and adjust their product portfolios. So our processes are inside out. They're not outside in. The other struggle is the fact that, you know, we've never had, in my opinion and, you know, in my tenure, we've never had more exciting technologies, whether it's schema on read or blockchain or Internet of Things or 3D printing or 
you know, the great advancements in machine learning and cognitive computing, it's coalescing to be able to really help us to reimagine what technologies could be. But unfortunately, the uh, companies are very stuck on investing uh, the IT funds in system upgrades and continued investment with technologies that are not really evolving with these uh, new trends. And so as a result, they're not able to really uh, embrace the new technologies to work with innovators. They use the same large system integrators that are very rewarded for implementing traditional systems, which are largely legacy. So, you know, how do we evolve? And then the fifth is really being able to drive new outcomes. As we look at new technologies and we look at customer-centric opportunities, you know, Amazon could basically build a model to drive new outcomes. But most companies are a lot like Kodak back in the 1970s where they had, you know, the patent for digital, but they were not able to bring digital photography to market because they were afraid of killing their film business. Most companies are stuck with the inability to get past current business models to rethink distributor relationships or their role in the market to be able to drive new outcomes. So, for example, I'm working with a pharmaceutical company who's, you know, challenging that, you know, who's the customer, right? The customer used to be the doctor, and then it, in the U.S. has become the payee, and some has become an insurance uh, based uh, value chain. And the question is, how do I move to wellness? How do I redefine care for elderly patients so that they can be in their home and uh, sense if they're taking their medicine through Internet of Things pillboxes and use wearables to understand where they are on diabetic or heart medications and efficacy and communicate to the doctors. And so the focus of a supply chain to move from the traditional outcome of efficient sickness to new outcomes of wellness is a struggle for companies, you know, in agricultural, you know, how do we move from selling farmers seeds and additives to be able to drive crop yields? In the case of, you know, automotive, you know, how do we move from selling people cars to selling them transportation? And so this inability of an organization to really redefine itself with these new capabilities often will fall on the shoulders of value chain leaders who are struggling because they're stuck in a function. They'd like to drive new outcomes, but, you know, their wheels are turning to do big well. The marketing wheels are turning to do small well. And how do we align to really rethink outcomes outside in? So those are some of the five things that are top of mind. Any of those of interest to you? Oh, all of them. <laughs> that was when I when I uh, saw the uh, the webcast of the uh, of the um, talk that you gave. I thought, wow, there is just so much to unpack here. Um, it's it's hard to know where to start on this. And I mean, I I know that you have plenty to say about why this is a state of affairs. I, a couple of days ago, I spoke with. Um, Jim Schnaber, who was who was co-CEO at SAP and is now chairman at Siemens, and what he says is that uh, this is how he views it. He says that we're far too constrained by success and the plan. We've we've spent our lives measuring people on KPIs. We have our board meetings and we go through all of that stuff, 
pat ourselves on the back and then and then move on and have lunch, right? And what he basically says is that in times of uncertainty and in times of change and the kinds of things that you're describing here, the plan is no longer any good because you can't really see the future. And therefore, what you have to be able to do is, is to let people use their creativity. That you know they've got it, right? But let them off the leash and let them help you find the solutions and actually start listening to them. And I said, well, that's grand. Great idea. But how do you do that? Because so very often I hear... Um, leaders from various industries and companies making these grand vision statements, you know, we're going to do this and change the world and yada, yada, yada. And then you find out that nothing happens. And, and again, he explained this by saying, well, again, the problem is, remember that if you're, a, if you're a CEO, you're lucky if you can reach one or two levels down. You've got to be able to reach all the way to the bottom. And there's only one way of, to do that, at least in his experience, and that is to um, um, transfer the passion of the message that you're trying to put forward to the next level and make those people CEOs of their next level and so on and so on until it does reach the bottom. He said that's the only way that we found to, to make that work. And he told me a story about how it nearly went catastrophically wrong um, because they weren't doing this kind of thing. They thought they were, but they weren't. Um, and and he's, he, has, he has results to, to show for that, so, and, um, which, which, which he can talk about. But you... See, do you think success is a, a is a barrier in itself, or is it complacency, or is it fear, or wh what would you say? Well, let's pull up the discussion. I think that the problem is that people are not clear where they need to go. Yeah. If you look at strategy, people will rally behind a very clear, concise message. I remember when Lastly turned around Procter & Gamble in early 2000, he basically said, I'm going to judge all employees by two moments of truth. Was the product in stock on the shelf? And when they used it, were they delighted? Mm -hmm. And he aligned all the metric systems around those two moments of truth. Mm -hmm. I remember when GSK basically put out a rallying cry that they wanted to save enough money to fund a new drug. And those are very simple rallying cries, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in agricultural companies, you know, in the focus on outcomes, you know, the rallying cry about let's feed the world in 2050, right? So it's got to be a very simple, concise message that's really going to enable the organization to have freedom to drive new outcomes. And then the metrics have to be aligned because right now we reward functional metrics and we believe that those functional metrics like maybe it's lowest cost of transportation or package price variance or forecast error or, you know, customer fill rate. We believe those functional metrics will drive success. But the problem is that the supply chain is a complex nonlinear system. And when I talk about supply chains, I'm talking about from the customer's customer to the supplier's supplier. When you reward functional metrics, you will throw the supply chain out of balance. So, for example, I tell people to think about costs like uh, decathletes, right? You know, when a decathlete competes, he never wants to be number one on any event. He wants to be two or three that have the best total score. With only 28% of companies able to see total cost, what happens is they will sub-optimize the supply chain on cost, throw it out of balance. And also, you know, if we focus on compound metrics like working capital, 
we play games because we elongate payables to basically hide the fact that we're not managing inventory. So in my writing, I say, let's develop a balance score card for value chain, and let's hold everyone in the organization accountable for what this outcome is across the value chain. And let's have the functional metrics really drive reliability against that balance scorecard. And then as I find that 1% of companies have a balance scorecard, most people reward functions to throw the supply chain out of balance. There's a belief that as I invest in technologies with large companies and large system integrators, I'm going to drive innovation, and I find that to be just the opposite. You know, there's a reason why GE was never able to drive success in that model, uh, and I think we're not learning there, right? I think that the new answers are coming from startup companies and startup consultancies and people that are focused on outcomes and rewarded for new outcomes in a very clear way with structured uh, scorecards that allow functions to work together. So when you talk, what do you mean when you talk about an outcome? What, just, just give me a relatively straightforward example. What would a good, a, a so good outcome? Lastly, Lastly's outcome was, is the shelf full? Right. Is the customer delighted? Okay. Which drove Parker and Gamble to measure on-shelf availability, not necessarily order fulfillment, mm -hmm. take it all the way to shelf, and to measure sentiment analysis and to look at rating and reviews and to really understand what that shopper wanted and what that customer wanted. Now, since then, Procter & Gamble has, I think, in my opinion, lost their way. But let's take an outcome where I talk about efficient sickness versus wellness. If you look at the United States, where we're really in a conundrum about health care, we pay 40% more than the rest of the world for health care, and our outcomes are not as good in terms of health, you know, wellness, whether we measure it by cholesterol levels or, you know, A1C for diabetes or age, you know, those are outcomes. So when we look at healthcare, you know, should the customer be the doctor who prescribes medicine? Should it be the hospital where care is given? Or should it be the insurance company that pays the bill? Or should it be, you know, myself in a focus on wellness? And so an outcome is what is it that you're trying to drive? And because we have looked at proxy measurements for outcomes, we have sub-optimized the deliverables. Does that help you? Yes, it does. And, you know, given, if, if we just think about the, the healthcare example at the moment, you're saying that there are a number of um, stakeholders here. What are, what are the healthcare companies themselves that you're talking to finding? What, what do they believe should be the, the focus of their attention at this time then? Well, they're very confused. I think in the whole healthcare value chain, I do not find a leader. Wow. So I have, you know, the only company that I see that's focused on trying to drive wellness is CVS, which is a retailer, which is working on Internet of Things pillboxes and trying to drive, you know, digital uh, medicine. Uh, Kaiser, at an insurance level, is trying to look at big data and to be able to look at combinatorial math to say, what kind of factors drive better outcomes, but really for which kind of issues. I have some companies in diabetes care that are looking at outcomes, but we're not really looking 
effectively at outcomes through that whole value chain. And if we were, we would restructure that value chain for data portability, not integration. We would restructure that value chain to focus on patient outcomes. We would clearly define them. We would be able to use the power of large companies, because if you think about the power brokers in that value chain, they're very large companies, pharmaceutical and medical device, we would use that power broker position to redefine outcomes. So, for example, there's a small company called TSMC in the semiconductor industry, and they wanted to basically drive a better position in a value chain than just the foundry. So what they created was a value network to help upstream partners understand the capabilities of new chips that were coming through the foundry so they could use them in R&D. So they were trying to drive better outcomes. So what if a and j took the credo seriously and said they were going to drive better outcomes for wellness, and they took an illness like medical device, a lot of work with spines and knees, and they said they were going to make you know, back health an important priority for back patients, or if Novartis said they were going to redefine healthcare for diabetes patients, and they took that seriously all the way to the patient, because those are power brokers versus looking at commercial models where sales sells to a distributor or sales sells to a doctor or sells to a hospital that is really looking at volume flows, not at value and outcomes. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, what, but what I can see there are, are conflicting priorities straight away, which, which uh, must, must make the, the, the resolution of this kind of thing extraordinarily d difficult. It does. So, and that's why it must happen at a leadership level with a very clear, concise outcome. So I was with one of those healthcare companies, and we were doing a Kaizen event with um, a large hospital that was progressive, and we were trying to define for outcomes for wellness. And at the break, the salesperson from uh, the pharmaceutical company tapped me on the shoulder and said, I'm really uncomfortable with the answer we're coming up here with, Laura, because it's going to cut my bonus. And I'm like, exactly, which is why it has got to be driven at a leadership level. And when we think about outcomes and we think about the coalescence of new technologies, if we do not do that in the old bricks-and-mortar companies, we're going to have all the likes of Uber and Amazon and Lyft that are going to redefine our models. And we're going to find companies like you know, Ford and Toyota to be historic companies. And we're going to find you know, retailers like pharmaceutical companies to be historic chapters in our history. It is incumbent upon manufacturers, distributors, and retailers to put value in their value networks, redefining outcomes, think about supply chain as a set of capabilities, and get past a limited view of technologies that basically make an efficient function. Yeah. One of the things that you, you mentioned um, earlier on today was um, the business of collaboration, and that's been a almost like a Cinderella situation from what, from what I can see, at least for the last 10 to 12 years. Um, is there an appetite to collaborate, do you think? Or are we still in this, well, what I would um, tend to describe as a channel master environment where the channel master is going to tell you everything that you're going to do and you're just going to get on with it? Uh, is there an appetite to collaborate or, or not yet? Well, I would argue that it's not really a Cinderella session because 
Cinderella was kissed by the prince and she fell in love, right? <laughs> and okay. what we really talked about in collaboration is really, you know, hollow words, right? We've talked about collaboration, but I know a very few examples in the value chain. And I'm an old gal, right? I'm 65 and I've been in this a long time. I only have five examples of true collaboration where we've had a significant win-win value proposition in the industry for the last 40 years. And so often I'll sit on the back row at a conference and I'll have like a little game I play about how many times people speak about collaboration, but it's really how am I going to slip my hand in your pocket and get your money and run away quickly. It's not about how we have sustaining win-win value propositions, how we drive to a higher level in value chain. So if you think about the evolution of GS1 and barcodes, that was an example of collaboration that helped the entire value chain. I could scan an item, I could recognize that item, and I could see the value of that item. And that was started by both retailers and consumer goods companies to collaborate. But now if we think about, you know, hollow initiatives like whether it was CPFR or VMI in the early days, those lost traction because they were not able to drive systemic value. And instead, what we've got today in the supply chain are companies like Walmart and Target who have big clubs who want to beat their trading partners to death with, you know, fines for delivery. And it's become a profit center, right? They not only want to take the promotional money, but they also want to have significant fines. So I have companies that have 100 to $150 million in fines with no system record and without, you know, the ability to even have a discussion about how do we get trucks there more effectively. So we talk about collaboration, but we have not really effectively been able to drive value in then more than a handful of situations. Mm. I, I, if memory serves, and I'm the same age as yourself, so a little long in the tooth and all, um, if memory serves, there, there was a, and this is some years back, I think, wasn't it the case that Rubbermaid was faced with extraordinary increased costs as, as a result of uh, oil price movements, went to Walmart and said, listen, we've, we've got to get a better price, and Walmart just turned around and flat said, no, it's not happening, and basically they just kicked them out. Uh, that, that kind of mentality surely is not is not still prevalent, is it? Well, it's very prevalent. Uh, and, you know, passing on costs, um, you know, if we're really going to work together to solve big, hairy problems, it requires us to be good power brokers. Walmart is a power broker. They exercise more power in the value chain than just one. We have to redefine the outcomes. Walmart has the ability to redefine outcomes, but you know they've not used that power effectively. And Amazon is now a new power broker, right? Uh, so we are not able to effectively collaborate. Uh, one of the case studies where we do effectively collaborate is in risk management on effective supplier development programs. So when the horrible issues hit Japan with the tidal waves, Intel sent their supplier development team to uh, Japan and brought up those factories. They knew where the factories were, they had the contacts, and they brought money to basically fund, you know, the rebuilding of those value chains. 
Ford woke up three weeks later and scratched her head why they didn't get bolts, right? Because they didn't know that the factory supplying bolts was in Japan. Likewise, in Hurricane Maria, because we put 30 to 40% of pharmaceuticals and medical device uh, supply for North America into the whole value chain into Puerto Rico for tax efficiency, the problem was when Hurricane Maria came through, most North American hospitals didn't know their sourcing, and they didn't realize they weren't going to get IV bags and very specialized drugs for uh, you know, cancer. They basically were caught on the back foot that you know, they had a supply issue. So supplier development programs, when done well, are a good form of collaboration. But only a third of companies have supplier development programs. Most companies are pushing cost and waste backwards in the supply chain, elongating payables, not owning, you know, the value chain signals, the demand and uh, electronic commerce, and not really being uh, focused on joint win-win value proposition. Mm. Uh, and you say about the business of, of forecasting, and um, this, I presume, then, is about visibility into your supply chain for a start, but also having the data available that you can actually see what's going on, I presume, yeah? Yeah, and that's easier said than done. Uh, you know, a lot of times uh, demand is kind of the whipping child of most people when they talk about supply chain effectiveness, right? If only the demand signal is better. And what most people don't realize is demand is a flow. It's a river through the supply chain. It starts with the tributaries of the customer's customer and flows through the enterprise. And what we do in forecasting is we take a time-phase snapshot of that river and what most people don't realize is that they've got to own the whole river. They've got to translate demand error into buffer strategies. They've got to manage the translation of that demand into source, make, and deliver. And a lot of times people will try to put superficial visibility tools on top of a snapshot and wonder why it doesn't work very well. What needs to change then? What, what are the conditions under which... You, you can see the value chain as you're envisaging it coming to life. Yeah, so what needs to change is we've got to focus outside in on channel data and translation of channel data into the organization. We've got to recognize that the order is not a good signal for demand. And the reason is that an order is not an order, a customer is not a customer, and that an order takes three times the amount of time to show up at our doorstep than it used to because of complexity and portfolio. So first thing is outside-in data, outside-in processes. The second thing is understanding that demand is a river to actually build an illustration of that river and think about the snapshots of that river that you want to understand to be able to tie that to a future-looking signal. So, you know, whether it's tactical demand planning or it's demand sensing and the operational horizon, how does that translate? And what am I going to do with that data? How am I going to try it to buffer strategies or push-pull decoupling points or strategic thinking? An example of where demand is translated into material requirements planning is DDMRP. Now, DDMRP is a useful tactic for navigating the river of demand but it by itself does not make you demand-driven. We need to do the same thing for manufacturing and distribution as we think about 
product flows because not all products are created equally. Mm. This, so that's how I think about demand. Does that help, Dennis? Yeah, 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 it, it, it does. Um, it's it certainly, I mean, I don't know, because it's, it's a while since I looked at this in any, in any real detail, but um, it, it strikes me that perhaps we may be stuck in, in the demand planning world of the early 1990s. I mean, I remember when um, I too suddenly became a force, and then um, I think you were with Manugistics at one stage. Would that be correct? Um, yeah. Those those two companies um, were were at the time putting forward this notion that uh, demand planning was was meant to be supreme. I don't see any real movement beyond that, unless I've missed something completely, which is no. perfectly possible. <laughs> Well, the problem is that, you know, Manu and I, too, fought against each other versus defining uh, the next generation of supply chain. And companies like SAP and Oracle convinced Gartner that, you know, the next generation was what they called ERP2, which was connection of advanced planning to ERP. Mm. And despite the fact that only 60% of planning data comes from ERP and that the average company has five to seven ERP systems, and the fact that Oracle and SAP did not build superior planning systems, people place their money in uh, bets with large system companies like SAP and Oracle, which stunned innovation. And uh, most people are waking up, you know, two decades later going, wow, my planning's worse today than it was in the 1990s, and I don't know what to do about it. And it's good for me because it gives me a lot of business and I, you know, have an annual conference and I do share groups. It's bad for the market because, you know, we're not able to sense market trends. Okay. And we're still living in a world of spreadsheets, right? 68% of planning is done with spreadsheets. Oh, and man. most people don't realize that a spreadsheet is not a good way to manage a complex nonlinear system. And, you know, it's maverick planning on steroids. Well, uh, just a, as a little bit of history here, and it's kind of like a side issue. Back in 1996, I think it was, I wrote um, I wrote a report that talked about um, a whole bunch of uh, reporting solutions, and I basically said, whatever you do, please don't touch the spreadsheet. And, and here were the reasons. First of all, it's a general purpose tool. Secondly, nobody documents anything. Third, it's prone to error. Guess what? <laughs> Where are we now? 2019. And I'm still told you'll never take the spreadsheet out of the finance office um, in their lifetime. They just will not get rid of it. And it's like, well, why do you continue using these things? It, it doesn't make any sense to me at all. Um, it's, it's still a frustration. I, I eventually, eventually turned into an annual rant. <laughs> and, um, you know, people could almost tell the time, oh, Howard's writing this again, is he? Fine. Nothing changed. And, and even now I would su suggest that very little has changed. Um, I and I, for the life of me, I can't understand why that why that is. But hey, you know, it's, that's what I see anyway. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that people that use spreadsheets are not able to really see the bigger picture. Mm. Mm. So. Okay. So when we look at when you talk about nonlinear linear systems in this this regard, do you have really good examples of? how that works in the real world and what kinds of things maybe that you're seeing today um, could, could radically improve uh, the supply chains? 
Yeah, so if you think about complex nonlinear systems, so, you know, a linear system uh, has a, a capability that's easier to model. Mm -hmm. I can model it through linear math, you know, formulas. In a nonlinear system, I have to use different math techniques. Mm -hmm. And in the long tail of the supply chain, as we've added more and more complexity to the long tail, I no longer have a normal distribution of demand around the mean, so I've got a skewed distribution. I've got a very lumpy uh, characteristic, which cannot be modeled through conventional techniques. And, you know, I'm excited about cognitive computing and the ability to have rules-based ontologies that can allow us to match customer attributes with product attributes to be able to translate demand in the river. However, that's a foreign concept to most people that are still stuck with time phase linear modeling. Mm. You, you also mentioned things like machine learning and so on. I, I get a little bit worried about this and the, for the simple reason that it would appear that everybody wants to slap an AI ML DL tag onto whatever it is that they're selling and yet what what are these things doing? And it's often very difficult to get a, a straightforward answer and in and in, and in exactly the same way people a lot of people want to talk about the blockchain. It's like, well, okay, what have you got? Turns out we're looking at little experiments here, little experiments there, nothing really live. Um, and yet the marketing machines uh, continue to uh, continue to drive awareness and um, people's agendas. The, uh, to my mind, it w I, I put a lot of responsibility on, on marketing departments for overselling capabilities that, that really aren't there at all. Is, is this something you see as well? Well, I do, but let's pull up the discussion. Right. Let's say, based upon current technology, where are the viable use cases? And then let's look at, in a practical world, what's happening. There's two different discussions. Mm -hmm. So in machine learning and cognitive computing in supply chain, there are four use cases. One is data cleansing. Second is model development. Third is prescriptive exception management. So an example there is when I drive down the road, you know, my Google Maps tells me that there's an obstacle down the road and I should take route X versus route Y. That's prescriptive exception management. Mm -hmm. We do not have that in today's supply chain, you know, and planning, people get, you know, this whole list of exceptions, and then, you know, it takes them a half a day to work through them, and at the end of the day, there's not a lot of value, and then they spend the other half of the day in meetings, and then at night, they try to work on their plans, so the ability for a planner to have effective time to plan is a struggle. The fourth area is the evolution of rules, right, whether it's allocation, ATP, inventory order matching, customer-centric, uh, routing optimization, all of these processes should be run through smart rules. So those four areas, data, cleanliness, model development, prescriptive analytics or exception management, and redefining the rules of the supply chain are all areas of opportunity. Okay. Now, what I see machine learning doing the best job at is data cleansing and data pattern recognition. And I worked with one company, very large manufacturer, had 21,000 suppliers, and they found out that really they only had 13,000. And the reason was that they had a lot of master data issues, right? So maybe it was Procter & Gamble one place, and it was Procter & Gamble Inc. in another, and it was P&G in another, and 
maybe another case Proctor was spelled wrong. Those are examples of company master data issues. And if you look at the evolution of ISO 8000 standards for master data in combination with machine learning, we have a great opportunity to clean up company data, master data for items, location data, and really get that clean. The whole area of planning master data is a ripe opportunity that machine learning is able to help us a lot, particularly with the adoption of the ISO 8000 standards for my master data. I'm trying to envisage... However... Sorry, go on. Sorry, go on. Lauren. Most people try to broad brush the master uh, ML cognitive computing uh, verbiage across the whole supply chain without definition. And my advice to users is stop the madness. We're not ready for cognitive computing and ML for the models or prescriptive analytics or rules. Let's just focus right now on master data. Let's let innovators pave the way for model development and exception management but let's don't get the cart get before the horse. Now, most companies are painting much more broad brush, high levels, plastering, ML, cognitive computing all over their slides. And, you know, we need to, you know, throw the flag and say, let's stop this hype cycle. I was, I was as you were talking there, I was thinking about the whole business of data cleansing there and, um, how does ML help here? I'm trying to understand how, how, how it would actually help. Is it, is it a, a, a case of pattern recognition is, uh, is allowing us to see better through? I, I don't know. I mean, feel free. <laughs> well, we, we can learn, right? So mistakes that are made on names or items or uh, locations yeah. are typically patterns. Right. Uh, maybe a company frequently substitutes product X for product Y. Well, we know that that was a pattern. Perhaps gotcha. people always make mistakes in naming conventions. Like sometimes people will call Supply Chain Insights SCI or they'll call Procter & Gamble P&G. We know some of those things coming in. Mm -hmm. Now, ALEI with ISO 8000 standards basically ascribes the authoritative identifier for companies back to their statement of incorporation, which gets us out of that. So it's sort of like a unique ID. In the United States, we have a social security number. Right. Some people have birth rates, uh, birth, birth numbers, right? Yeah. So an authoritative identifier that then comes to the name. So ML helps me with learning patterns, sensing patterns, and taking the patterns I know to execution. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, I, I get it, I get it. Laura, what, I, I'd, I'd like to ask you again, though, what kind of conditions would you say need to emerge for the value chain to change and be, uh, become the thing that, um, that you're envisaging here? Is, are we looking at another recession? Is it going to be economic pain that does this? Is it going to be com competition like we've seen with the likes of Amazon and Uber and those others? Or is it something else completely different, would you say? You know, I don't know the answer, but it's going to be something big. Uh, <laughs> you know, in, in 2007, uh, with the recession, I was hoping that that would be enough of a shakeup that people would rethink value chains to the outside end, but that didn't happen. Mm. I remember sitting uh, in front of the DuPont economists, and they were asking me, was the recession going to be a U or a V or a W because they wanted to know how to make more money in the upturn. Mm. And I said to them, 
you know, you sit with all the housing start data. You can easily get the retail data. You can get your car data because that's the end product that they sold into. They were a pigment company, but you don't use it. And your current technologies don't allow you to use it. So redefine so you can be outside in. And then DuPont implemented the process to be outside in. And then in the next year, they had a very large system integrator that came in and said, oh, no, 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 that's not best practices. We've got to put in one SAP system and manage off of orders. And so they totally got rid of what I had worked on. And the difference is, you know, learning from the past to unlearn to rethink supply chain. We've got a lot of system integrators that believe they know the answer. And everyone that thinks they know the answer is probably going to recreate the problem. And we have a lot of people who are running around who think they know the answers, but they don't really understand and are rethinking the capabilities with new technology. So first of all, I think it's gotta be something big. Secondly, I think it has to be something that is substantial at an economic level. If you remember, you know, Drucker was not really embraced in North America, even though Peter Drucker, you know, first started his work in North America. It was only when the Japanese took Drucker's work that it redefined value chains. So perhaps the Chinese and the redefinition of value chains will drive the step change in thinking, or perhaps the Japanese market with the redefinition of customer centric will adopt blockchains. I'm not sure, but I think the concepts that were percolating in our modern trade innovators, either in North America or in Europe will be adopted somewhere in Asia that will drive a step change. Uh, you know, I, I go to Africa a lot, and I'm always confounded that M-Pesa came out of the fact that people couldn't get bank accounts, and they didn't have the old traditional phones. They had mobile phones, and they had to solve the problem, right? Mm. So they created a type of currency, and they created a way of trade that could bypass existing norms, right? Mm. So I think that the ideas that are percolating will be picked up somewhere, whether it's the Chinese redevelopment of the Silk Road to Europe or uh, the Japanese and the reinvention of routes to market. Okay. Third, I think that the economic pressure of new startups, whether it's Uber, Lyft, Tesla, Amazon, that challenge will challenge traditional bricks and mortar companies. You know, as we watch companies like Sears fold and, uh, you know, but we will, we will rise from failure. Okay. The last one, which I hope does not happen is warfare. Some of the greatest supply chain inventions come from warfare. If you look at, you know, I hate what's happened in the middle East. I think, you know, uh, Syria used to be a beautiful place to visit, uh, but there have been some tremendous innovation that has happened out of the Middle East. Or if you look at, you know, when we started the space uh, journey, a lot of innovation happened there that uh, the supply chain was able to learn from. Major shifts will drive this outcome. Okay. Does that help? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's interesting that you say this because as, as I look across the um, – the buying landscape, what I'm starting to see are more companies prepared to take risks on some of the smaller startups that you've 
um, alluded to, as opposed to going directly to their their big suppliers. And um, that's been a surprise to me because generally what I find with IT people is that they tend to be, regardless of the fact that we think that they're terribly innovative and all the rest of it, they, they tend, at least the ones I see, to be fairly risk-averse. And, and so I do see that change. And I've certainly seen that change in, in Germany, for instance, where um, they have woken up, Mittelstand has, has woken up to the fact that you know, their 100 or 150 or 200 year or in some cases 1,000 year history is not going to take them into the next century. That they do have to do, that rethink their businesses and they do have to think differently and, and as a result are prepared to listen to some of these uh, smaller companies. Is, have, you, have you observed something similar as well or, or, or is it fairly, fairly rare? I wish that was the case. I mean, I think Industry 4.0 is too limited. It really focuses more on manufacturing. Mm. I think that uh, many of the e-commerce standards happen through world trade. Uh, you know, I would love to see the United Nations, World Economic Groups pick up, you know, the concepts around how do we mobilize better trade. I'm working with uh, a company in Colombia that feeds children that's experimenting with blockchain to get out of, you know, the fact that the Colombian government allows forces money to sit 20 days in the banking accounts to before they can pay farmers and blockchain helps us to get around that. Wow. But I, I don't see any country or any organization really questioning the status quo in a big way. And I personally am very disappointed in the large system integrators, whether it's Accenture, Deloitte, ENY, who are selling yesterday's technologies, or the large technology companies, whether it's IBM, SAP, Oracle, SAS, they're all selling yesterday's solutions without really pushing a step change in thinking. And that's what I'm all about. You know, I, I want to drive a step change in thinking before I retire because it worries me that we're not able to drive corporate social responsibility. 90% of companies have a corporate social responsibility document. Only 30% tie it to the supply chain behavior. Or that we're not able to feed the planet in 2050. Uh, or that we're not able to really drive wellness. Those things keep me up at night. Mm. And I think it's supply chain leaders that can solve those problems. But we have to think differently and drive new outcomes. And we can't lull ourselves to sleep thinking we've got best practices. Well, I always think that best practices mean is, is akin to looking in the rearview mirror. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not convinced that we do uh, have any best practices for going forward into the future and that we're going to have to invent them along the way. Um, at least that's, right. my, that's my view. But... Um, you know, I often, I often get okay. shot down with that one. <laughs> no, that's right. I agree with you. Yeah. Thanks for having me on the show today. I hope I helped. You did indeed, Laura. It's been great. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for your time. Take care. Take care. Bye Cheers. now. Bye.